Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Here we are at the headquarters of the Resolution Foundation for this episode. Yes, interesting. More of which later. Yes. But, but before that, I hate to say I told you so. I hate to gloat. Go on. I told you that Matt Hancock going on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here wouldn't do him any good. I told you that he couldn't pull the wool over the public's <laughs> eyes. Uh, I mean, did you watch any of it? I didn't, actually. I, I, I struggled with some of that animal stuff. Lots of people did. 12 million of them, I believe. I know, I know. Well, it's... So, you know, considering going... I know you haven't been invited on the actual show, but the, the spin-off where somebody, they sit around in a studio, somebody, you might do my that My constituency next year. asked me, and I was like, no. But do you not think you are now going to see a bunch of politicians thinking, Maybe. There's, there's my rehabilitation? Some of them might even start doing podcasts. <laughs> now... A couple of things to bring up. Yeah. The first one, in fact, I think is, is probably more of a compliment than anything, oh. because I saw a tweet the other day saying, there's been a lot to love about the by-election campaign in Chester, but nothing will top Ed Miliband dad dancing in the street to Mariah Carey. I know, it's pretty... Wonderful. Well... I mean, who needs to go on Strictly Come Dancing when you can just be caught on a camera phone doing this in the street? Just to sort of defend myself slightly, it was sort of partly satirising my own dancing, if you see what I mean. There was like a postmodern ironic... There was, a de- there was definitely a postmodern... So, it was so because did- there was a, it was, let me picture this scene. I was, as you might expect from me, by the, the spot marking the first ever hydroelectric station built in the UK, driven by river tides. And you were moved to dance. I mean, obviously that's somewhere you visited before, isn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, which was constructed in 1913. And I was Family by holiday the, next year. I was, exactly. I was by the plaque marking that spot. And then uh, a, a lady draws up in her car. There was a dog looking out of it, which is why I'm saying, oh, look at the dog, in case just for people who think I'm just sort of making, you know, it was just chutney or something. I thought you had a break uh, from reality. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're exactly. a dog. Chutney, yeah. yeah. Um, and... She, and she had the music on quite loud, and it was quite a sunny day, and it was indeed Mariah Carey. And, and you were moved... I was moved to dance. The location, just the, yeah. the, the, the... Your head started swimming. She didn't really notice me, if I'm honest. You can see on the thing, me <laughs> waving. And then as the light went green, then she did sort of notice me. And thought, who's that bloke doing really rubbish dancing? Uh, she, sort of moved, she kind of looked slightly embarrassed and turned the music down, I think. Uh, I thought you were sort of channeling uh, John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Well, slightly, you know what I mean? Mm. That's why there was a sort of certain post, there was a, there was a postmodern cheek. ironic. It was a wink. Yeah, and exactly, a nod. Exactly. Nods as good as a wink. Exactly. I, don't, I think you should incorporate it more into your campaigning. You could say, often these days people don't have trust in politicians, but let me tell you, electorate. Hips don't lie. And then <laughs> it's hip to be square. Show them what you can do. You know, being serious for a moment, mm. I think it's so interesting because we often talk about renewable energy as the energy of the future. But what's so interesting about this hydroelectric thing is the energy of the 
past as well. 40% of Chester's electricity was at one point provided by this hydroelectric uh, power station. They were on the right track and then we took a wrong turn. Well, no, I'm not quite saying that, but what I'm saying is that, you know, they also, they did use the sun, the wind, tides, etc. And then fossil fuels came along. Mm. Gives you a different perspective on the whole history Mm. and drives you to dance. What was the other thing you wanted to raise? Well, the other, the other thing was, I've had yeah. this in my phone for a while, and I thought, I've not mentioned this to Ed yet. Oh, no. um, somebody forwarded me a WhatsApp message from Halloween. So this, this is from about a month ago. Uh, it said, um, one of my friends who's a medical student told me that she went as sexy Ed Miliband for a Halloween party last weekend. Oh, my God. Is there a picture? There isn't, no. <laughs> uh, but... I mean, I, I what, it, what seems I like a, it seems like an oxymoron, really, doesn't it? Well, I don't understand how... You, I mean, surely you just say Ed just Miliband. Don't to... You don't need to say sexy Ed Miliband. It's implied in the, in the words Ed Miliband. Well, I think that's the kind of ironic postmodern twist, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a sort of make... a beautiful homage to you. Well, what's that thing I told you about the when I went to that bar and somebody said, oh, can I take a picture of you because you're my unlikely crush? Yes, yes. We, you know, and we discussed unlikely crush. Don't you, think it's the, don't you think it goes in the unlikely crush territory? I do. And, and when, when I think back to that conversation, it did start to resemble a therapy session. Indeed. So, so we don't really want to go there, do we? No, hopefully you've, you've yeah. learned from that past experience. Should we say where we have come, though? Yes. Let's, let's talk about why we're here. What a neat segue that was, don't you think? Very nice. Well, we are at the headquarters of the Resolution Foundation, a think tank based Uh, in London. And we're going to be talking to Karis Roberts, the director of the IPPR, and Torsten Bell, who runs the Resolution Foundation, about two very important reports that they've done, the Commission on Economic Justice uh, in 2018 by the IPPR and Stagnation Nation from Resolution, to talk about not just the sort of cost of living crisis that people are facing, but really the deeper roots of that and what their reports say about our economy, why people are facing such difficult times, why our economy is facing such difficult times, what the sort of history of this is, and how it might be different. Mm. And it's a really interesting conversation, isn't it? Wide ranging. Shall I ask you what your reason to be cheerful is? Sure. What's your reason to be cheerful? (laughs) I went to a party. That does not sound like you. No, that isn't my reason to be cheerful. No, but that's very unusual. Well, it was actually my reason to be fearful for many weeks leading up to the party. Were you you really fearful? Yes. In what way fearful? Because I get so anxious about the interactions. Right. But there was a dog at the party. Yes. Called Eric, named after Eric Morecambe. And I got to hold it for about 40 or 50 minutes. And I think if I could have a dog as a prop at a party... I'd be a lot more comfortable. Was I felt like Bob Carroll G's with Spit the Dog. Everybody talked to the dog. Yes. And I had something to cuddle, which just made me feel a bit more anchored. Have you always felt this about parties? Maybe not during my alcoholism, but some people might argue that that was masking it. <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? <laughs> um, so my reason to be uh, cheerful is that I went to see a film. It's called After Sun. Justine booked tickets and we went with both our kids, and they basically, as they pointed out rather early on in the film, they were the only kids there. Um, and it's about this father and daughter going on holiday. And <laughs> I think it's very interesting, this film, because not much happens in it. And in a good way, though. There's something very interesting about this film, which is I think the very nature of nothing dramatic happening in it 
is a sort of invitation for you to think about your own relationship with your children or your parents or family holiday. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's so, a moment of meditative reflection almost. And then this reminded me of a story, which is, I think is quite obscure, which is my father um, taught in America and they used to have these meetings, departmental meetings. And one of the people at the meeting used to just, a bloke, used to knit throughout the meeting and never said anything. And he's, my dad once said to one of his colleagues, why does this person never say anything? And, they, and his colleague replied and said, he's saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> now, I might have missed the point of the film because I think some quite dramatic things did potentially happen and maybe I just missed them. But it was really an invitation for you to think for yourself, mm. basically. You're taking up knitting then? Is that, is that the takeout from this? Possibly. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So, Jeff, we've come to unfamiliar surroundings. I, th- I feel like I wish almost should be hushed tones. As a music fan, the hallowed ground is, for example, Abbey Road. As a policy wonk... That is true. Is, is this where we're, we're sitting now? This, this, is, this like, is the equivalent. I mean... In, in years to come, there'll be a plaque here. <laughs> we are on location at the Resolution Foundation with two absolutely brilliant, lovely people. Torsten Bell, who is the director of the Resolution Foundation, and Karis Roberts, who is the director of the Institute for Public Policy Research. And they are two of the biggest progressive brains around. And we're going to talk about the economy. Great. Well, I think you've certainly managed people's expectations there. Very, very, very well. Welcome to your office, Dalston. I'm not rising to any of this. <laughs> let's talk about the British economy, which is what people really want to know about. Okay, let's get into this conversation. So let's start with the now, and then we're going to go deeper. And the, the, I should say that the reason we're particularly keen to talk to you both is that, Karis, in 2018, the IPPR published a very important report called the Commission on Economic Justice, with which you were instrumentally involved. And Torsten, earlier this year, as part of your Economy 2030 inquiry, you published Stagnation Nation about the uh, British economy. But let's start with the cost of living crisis that we're currently in, an energy bills crisis. How bad is the current situation? And is this crisis different from what has gone before? Well, I think you know, everyone up and down the country paying their own energy bills or even going out for the shop knows things are very bad. Indeed, we've got the highest inflation in 40 years. And we're talking about income shocks that are on a scale that you would only even ex- think you could see in a very deep recession happening this year and next year. 7% income falls over the course of the two years. That's about £1,700 per household. So these are really big um, income falls. Driven by energy bills and inflation. So they're principally dri- the inflation is principally driven by either the direct effect of energy bills on how much we will have to pay to heat our homes or the indirect effects of that plus wider increases in global goods prices. And how bad is it compared to historically? Well, it's the worst. I mean, on, well, we don't have on record a two-year period that looks as bad as this. Karis? Yeah, I, I think I'd just add to that that it's a kind of substantively different shock to what we've had in our kind of most recent crises. And in particular, there's that interaction with health. So at the moment, you've got about 2.1 million people with long COVID and you have hundreds of thousands missing from the workforce so you would have expected to be there. And that's also exacerbating a lot of these problems in terms of uh, how much firms can produce um, and so on and causing major problems for incomes as well. And that's a rather under-talked-about problem, isn't it, actually? 
Yeah, it is discussed, but I think often we don't really think about the linkages between our health and our economy. And in fact, this is something we're doing work on at the moment. It is really critical. I mean, if you, you know, people tend to talk about how the economy is important to support stronger health. But it also goes the other way in terms of needing people to uh, be living healthy lives and be able to participate in work in order to have a strong economy. So you've described the current situation. Can you just go deeper into the sort of what lies beneath? What's sort of taken us up to this point? So one thing I think we we should dwell on just the current, why it's so bad right now, is that it is awful for everybody, unless you're on a very high income. But for those on higher incomes, the awfulness translates into not being able to afford an expensive holiday next year. But that is very different to the behavioural change that's going to be driven for those on lower incomes, for whom energy is a bigger part of their consumption. So I think we mustn't lose that bit of it, which is, it's bad for everyone, but the impact is very different for different groups. Uh, And the reason that's important is when I then step back to say, what are the two big things you have to understand about 21st century Britain to understand why we're so badly prepared for what's currently happening? They are the fact that we're living with the inequality of the 1980s, the highest inequality of any large country in Europe. And you then look at what public attitudes towards that inequality are. The concern about that inequality doesn't actually start rising when inequality goes up. Concern about inequality goes up after 2010. And that's because of the second big feature of uh, our political economy, which is the stagnation of the last 15 years. So inequality goes up in a phase of some growth in the 1980s and actually quite good growth in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's the last good bit of growth Britain had. And it's fairly pretty well shared as well at that point. But since the mid 2000s, we've seen basically very low income growth, particularly for working age households. And in the last 10 years, no wage growth at all. That's just been and and, and that's no, unprecedented, is it? Yeah, like I mean, literally since we Napoleonic times. Yeah, we said, did, well, we didn't yeah. even used to, we did not even used to like have scenarios for how an economy would pan out that involved no wage growth. We, it wasn't even like on the list of possible things that could happen there. And it turned out it could, not only can it happen, it can happen over and over and over again um, for us over the last fifteen years. Now, the key thing is to put those two big trends together because the two together are a toxic combination for lower middle income Britain. Because you haven't got enough GDP per capita to share out, and then loads of what you have got to share out is going to the top, basically. And that is what makes our economic situation very different to countries we normally compare ourselves to. Just to give you one example that's directly relevant to today's cost of living crisis, it's that if you look at the share of spending of lower middle income Britain that goes on essentials, so food, travel, your house, right? It's not just that it's high, but it's increased significantly in the last 15 years. Okay, so when this crisis comes along and it's the cost of essentials going up, it's doing it to a country where poorer people and those on middle incomes are already devoting quite a lot of their spend to those essentials. That's why it's so difficult to cope when it happens. And that is not what's been happening elsewhere. And that's what happens when you have very high inequality and stagnant growth. We went into the pandemic with very weak incomes, as Torsten's just described. And if you look at the decade from 2009 to 2019, 40% of people approximately saw their incomes fall. Um, that's about twice as much as in the preceding decade. So you see people with really changed experiences and insecure incomes going into the pandemic. 
But underpinning that, I think there was a much weaker economy, and we should get into some of the kind of features of that, what what was driving that weakness, um, and also weak public services. Uh, so, for instance, you had very little capacity in the NHS to deal with the pandemic um, and so on. And so all of these things are kind of pushed right to their edge, and then something like a pandemic comes along, and in fact the cost of living crisis, and that can push it over the edge. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Let's talk some more about those further weaknesses but am I right in thinking then the 80s here the kind of Thatcherism was a similar thing was happening elsewhere but it was more extreme here than our peers so I think that's a fair description in two ways so the the pace of the deindustrialization is quicker here so there's a reason, you know, in Ger- Germany's like manufacturing share remains significantly higher, but other countries that have deindustrialized did it more slowly. So they may have got to a similar endpoint, but they didn't do it all at a very swift pace. It's also true that the speed and the extent of the inequality rise is greater here. The flip side of inequality went up, right, is that those on middle and higher incomes saw pretty fast income growth during the 1980s. And not all of the features are uniquely British. Um, we have a tendency to, you know, think that Britain is uniquely... Uh, is there a land beyond the sea? <laughs> exactly. Um, but the, a lot of the features are actually shared. And particularly if you look at the kind of Anglo economies, if you look at the US, if you look at Australia, they also had rapidly rising asset prices through that period and so on. Um, and so some of this is kind of internationally shared in nature. It's not just a Britain story. And yet, I feel that people often have a similar sensibility to me, are very quick to share graphs on social media about how we lag behind on all these various metrics. So there are other features that are unique to us then. Yeah, and obviously the fact that some other countries have also managed to completely mess up their housing markets and so on doesn't mean that we're winning. Um, There are, you know, social democratic countries uh, in particular in Europe who are far exceeding the UK in terms of some of the key metrics that we'd want to see in terms of wages and inequality. And so it's really, I, I think about trying to disentangle what are kind of global effects and what is a feature of a global economic system versus uh, what we can do within that global context. And one of the arguments that we made actually in the Commission's report is that for years we've been too unambitious in thinking, oh, this is a global feature, there's nothing we can do about this huge change, and too unambitious about what we actually can do within the UK to fix some of the problems. Something I wondered about is that both of these reports set out broad, expansive plans for rethinking the economy and restructuring the economy. Is is there any fear that if you were to implement something like this, you end up like in a Liz Trust situation where you've got an idea that just seems really radical and scares the horses. And the lettuce wins. (laughs) Thanks for the flashback to uh, the last few months of stability in all our lives. I mean, there's obviously like, have you got the right diagnosis of an answer that's remotely useful? And have you gone about it in a way that's kind of vaguely paying attention to the constraints that you face? So even if the thing you want to do is stupid, which this one definitely was, don't go about it in a really stupid way, it will help. My bigger picture, like, reflection on that is too often in quotes radical plans aren't well connected to the actual country aren't well informed by the actual country the state of the country the challenges it faces then the what's possible either because of the global constraints characters 
mentioning or because of the actual nature of that economy. And I do, that's what, when I see things that basically, I'm being a bit unfair, but I often read reports that you might generally see as coming from like the centre-left or a social democrat tradition that basically collapse into, it'd be better if we were Germany, right? And if your prescriptions are based on a wish that you did live in Germany, then my actual view is you'd be better off going to live in Germany rather than trying to make Britain better, given how it actually exists and how people live their lives and what is actually possible. I mean, I completely agree that the problem with Truss's mini-budget or Quartang's mini-budget was that it didn't address the problems as they actually existed in the UK economy. Uh, It was putting forward an ideological plan that just simply didn't connect with the problems that needed tackling. But does that kind of, does that mean that if an analysis based on kind of what the existing strengths and existing problems of the UK are mean that we can't kind of hope to emulate things that are happening abroad? But I think, you know, there's a kind of big scholarly literature and debate on whether there's these kind of varieties of capitalism and you simply can't switch between one variety of capitalism to another. Um, I do actually think some of that was kind of thrown into question during the pandemic. So, for example, uh, you know, you often hear people say, oh, we simply can't have uh, unions or kind of co-determination in the same way you have in Germany. We simply can't have a furlough scheme. And then guess what? We had a furlough scheme. And so I do think, while I, you know, obviously you can't just click your fingers and switch, I do think it is worth thinking what actually could we pull across and what might fit into our uh, model of the economy. So it feels like so far in this conversation, the inequality that we had Jeff's question about the 1980s was sort of speedier and ending up higher yeah very very high you both in different ways have set out two elements to this the inequality piece and the growth piece looking over that longer period it would have been possible to grow more yeah I mean it's not like you know everybody's find really bad growth and so on countries relative performance varies hugely over this period I mean Britain is relatively catching up not just with like France and Germany, but with the US over the course of like the 1990s and into the early 2000s, and has basically been on relatively growth. on growth, yeah, and has been relatively declining against all those countries since 2007, 2006, right? There we had 15 years of relative decline. Now, if you want to talk about that in productivity terms, it's we've had half the productivity growth of the average OECD country during that phase. I think we basically think, oh, in Britain we're basically pretty similar to like France, Germany, the Netherlands, or Anglo-Saxon countries. Mainly, we mean Canada. Australia, we think, okay, the US is exceptional, it's really rich, but basically we're the same as Australia and Canada. Like, that is just not true anymore. 15 years of relative decline means those countries are much richer than us, and the people that live in them are much better off. Like, just go and wander around a Dutch suburb, right? They are not living the same suburban lives that we're living, because this stuff actually matters. Right? And people's, people's incomes would have been, I mean, if we'd had, in the last 15 years, growth similar to the previous period, or similar to these other countries, people would have been thousands of pounds richer, well, they could have been, yeah. yeah. Obviously, you need that growth to also be shared. And actually, yeah. if you look at the decades between 1979 and 2012, the bottom half pre-tax and pre-benefits barely shared in the growth. So yeah. there's sort of kind of two pieces to this. There's the kind of how do you boost growth and how do you ensure that it's broadly shared? I have one question before we get on to solutions, which I know you both have. We've talked about inequality, we've talked about growth. Maybe we haven't talked enough about the links between them. Does one produce the other? I mean, it's quite a complex thing to try and pull apart. There can be a bit of an assumption in economics that you kind of, you do your growth and then, you know, amongst some schools, people would say that trickles down, that helps people at the bottom. And in a kind of, in some senses, that's true, right? You need that strong uh, economic basis on which to kind of pay for your public services and pay for your welfare state and all those sorts of things. 
Um, but one of the things that we argue is that actually a fairer economy is actually a stronger economy. And I use the word stronger in two ways. So one, that a fairer economy can boost growth. So people on low incomes tend to spend a greater proportion of their income in the economy, for example. And an economy that draws on the talents of everybody is more likely to be successful. But also stronger in the sense of kind of stability. And so if you have this very high inequality, you also end up with lots of kind of speculation that can increase volatility and cause crashes and bubbles and those sorts of things. And so we we make the argument that actually a fairer economy is also a stronger economy. And if you look around the world, OECD, IMF evidence, you see that actually those economies that have fairer distributions of income and wealth actually have more stable. And those institutions like the OECD and the IMF have changed their view on this in the last... 30 years and are much more likely to say that. Yes, absolutely. If you look at the kind of IMF reports on the UK, their tone has definitely shifted in terms of how much they're emphasising inequality as a problem that government needs to be fixing. On the link, I think discussing the link abstractly from the actual economic conditions or the change that is driving either of those things is slightly dangerous because it basically tends to generalize and i think they're in both directions people that used to say you've got to get inequality up is like the price of getting growth or now people saying like we don't need to worry about growth if we just make the country more equal uh, then some growth will come and anyway growth doesn't really matter i'm afraid i don't really buy either of those and to be a bit more optimistic, so if you, if you look at the relationship between growth and inequality during that 1980s phase, there's definitely a link in the sense that the nature of the growth was part of the inequality story. So it's people doing really well in some new growing sectors, while some people who are more likely to be unemployed were left behind by the decline of those other sectors. So there was a direct relationship between where the growth was coming from, and the 1980s is the like poster child of that, a badly handled transition which left some people really behind on very low incomes, while some people did really well out of the transition. That is what gave you the higher inequality to a large And does that, extent. Does that then link to the growth? Yeah, it's not because we became more unequal, we were able to have growth. It's the nature of one of the drivers of growth, which is this reallocation and the bad right. handling of that. But what about more recently? So that's what I want to come on to, which is on now, I think we need to understand that the situation is quite different. The things that would drive growth, we're not seeing large amounts of reallocation between sectors in our economy nowadays. In fact, we're probably seeing too little. So everyone says, oh, the economy is changing more than ever these days. Yeah, it's all just total nonsense. Sectoral reallocation has been falling. And that has some optimism with it, which is the ways we would probably get growth today are probably less pushing up on inequality than what we saw in the 1980s. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sometimes you hear this talked about as a, as a decline of manufacturing problem. 
And you talk about maximizing services becoming a services superpower. So I think I didn't even quite understand services prior to reading your well, report. That is, despite being one, you, you <laughs> yes. are... I didn't think I was a service. Uh, mate, you are not only... You are, You're um, a growth we, industry. We are enjoying service. this service right now. Everyone listening <laughs> to it growth, is... It's a growth industry. Podcasting, podcasting. service. That, well, you're not making anything, are you, mate? I mean, look, let's be honest. Like, <laughs> what have you manufactured recently? What have I contributed? <laughs> you're, you're right. Who has Torsten not offended in this podcast so far? I mean, even by your standards. <laughs> I'm just saying he hasn't actually, you know, contributed anything you material. Created, well, you have you've contributed material. a lot. You have not made a machine tool. It's difficult tool, to quantify you? it, though. Do you not have any merch? We, we did briefly. <laughs> but talk, talk to us about this idea that the decline of manufacturing is, is perhaps a bit overstated and services could be maximised. You call it a service, services superpower. The big argument is, so how, are we going to be serious about getting growth up and inequality down? The first starting point is, do you understand your economy as it actually exists today? Uh, Let's distinguish between uh, prescription, what should happen, what we want to happen, and then description, are we understanding the UK economy properly? And so I'm I'm, I'm saying descriptively, Britain is a service exporting superpower. Just explain to people what service is. We do all kinds of things, musicians, architects, anything to do with intellectual property, culture, marketing, advertising. And anything in the business services space, which is like large, most of the jobs that people do, loads of our services are public services. I think it's really important within that, though, to distinguish between tradable services. So all the things I listed at the beginning there are things that we can sell to the rest of the world or we sell but across places, okay? They may not trade literally, but they could be traded. There's then non-tradable services, which is the people that either have cut Ed's hair or should have cut Jeff's hair in the recent uh, past. Those are non-tradable... Well, that's Jeff's barber insulted there's, as well. Yeah, there's, uh, there's non-tradable services. And I think the, the, we should be really clear that those are very different and they have very different roles in our economy but the but the service superpower thing which i say is a description rather than me saying that's what should happen is a, is because we are the second biggest exporter of services in the world after the united but states we've got to those services at the moment yes so and we're talking about how we can be better now the reason it's important to recognize that's the nature of your economy isn't because everything about it is good it's because if you recognize that you then also know there are some downsides to being that kind of economy because a service high value added service economy if just left to its own devices has higher productivity gaps between places. Those cities versus smaller towns will have higher productivity gaps in that economy than they will in a manufacturing economy. There are some serious downsides to the concentrations of people in some places because it will push up housing costs in those areas. So what do you do then? You've got to build a lot of houses to stop housing costs going up for poorer households. You've got to provide social housing that stops the people having to leave the city right, so uh, they're living. And you've got to connect people to those new opportunities. So I don't want to mischaracterize you, but sort of services are at the center of this economic story. And then lots of things flow from that around infrastructure, skills, housing, and so on, at least as a big part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, you still, this is not like an anti-manufacturing. Yeah. Where you've got it, you really want to protect Understood. it. If you're in Derby, if you're in Port Talbot, you've, you know. Understood. I think a lot of what Tosin's saying comes down to, do you lean into existing strengths? Do you try and create new strengths? And is it ever possible to do so? And I think where I might potentially differ is in thinking about the extent to which it's possible to kind of either start new strengths or kind of take the the nascent beginnings of of those strengths. So if you look at something like life sciences, uh, where the UK is, is a leader, pharmaceutical companies, companies that are looking into innovations in health. Um, if you look at aerospace, they did not come into being um, just because they came into be, being through government support and actually the 
finance sector is the same. So it's a mix of kind of regulation. It's a mix of investment. The NHS is a huge customer of those companies that are working on health innovations. And so government does have the capacity to shape sectors as they exist, but also how they might exist in future. What does that mean for this kind of services manufacturing division? Uh, well, I think kind of to turn that question on its head a bit, it's, it's more what are the tradable sectors? How can we increase exports from those tradable sectors? And actually, a lot of companies are kind of blurring the lines between the two. So they're doing both manufacturing and they're doing services. So if you look at something like electric vehicles, there's a huge amount of intellectual property in the kind of designing. There's a services element to that. And there's also potentially a manufacturing element to that. The thing I do think, though, is that this problem of service sectors not necessarily leading to that broad-based, broadly shared shared wealth automatically is really important and it's one of the arguments for not giving up on manufacturing as part of that because actually we've seen huge productivity increases and also a better distribution of productivity around the country through those sectors before. I mean we've talked a lot about services and manufacturing what what are the other things that need doing Karis? I mean you you had a whole set of recommendations in the Commission on Economic Justice 70 recommended what are the other sort of key things for us to have in our mind to address some of the problems that both you and Torsten have outlined? Mm -hmm. Well all of our recommendations were based on two principles one that you need to shift into an investment economy so you need to be investing in, in the future and for that stronger growth and then secondly that you need to be thinking about where power lies in the economy and redistributing power now that's not just a kind of nice uh, soft thing in order to try and kind of uh, boost wages and incomes although that's a very important piece of it it's also that if you've got a few firms who've locked up the power in the market they're, they're not going to be investing in the future they're not going to be as competitive as they might be and so we need to be thinking about the different ways in which we, we can do that lots of the things that we recommend come down to how can we build in institutions that are going to kind of protect protect that power and make sure that when the public sector is investing and socialising risk. It's also socialising the reward and sharing the benefits fairly. Uh, so, for example, we put forward the idea of a citizens' wealth fund, which could hold stakes in companies across the British economy um, and then distribute distribute the rewards in the form of a £10,000 inheritance. I think, actually, we both put out that recommendation around the uh, same time. All the best people do. <laughs> we have recommendations in there for thinking about how we can push up wages. So, for example, with uh, not just a higher minimum wage, but thinking about uncontracted hours and how we can push up standards in jobs. And we have recommendations in there for thinking about the balance of wealth. We make the argument for kind of rebalancing taxation away from income from work towards income from wealth, for example, through equalising rates of capital gains tax and income tax. So as Ed alluded to, there are kind of a ton of recommendations in there. Uh, and all of them have evidence behind them of how they could improve uh, the strength and the growth of our economy, keep it within sustainable limits, and also address the huge imbalances of power that are leading to greater inequality in the UK economy. Sounds like we should do all of that. Anything you would add? I think I believe I'm right in saying that your actual recommendations are coming out. This time next year. I think just in terms of big picture things where I think we are, where an economic strategy that was serious about getting inequality down and growth up would 
be focused is if I reflect back on the last kind of 20 years of economic policymaking, I think we have made a mistake in thinking about all jobs and all industries as the same without enough of this distinction between tradable and non-tradable sectors. On the non-tradable side, okay, so I gave a hairdressing example, but we're talking about retail jobs, we're talking about hospitality jobs, hotels and the rest, leisure jobs. We want there to be good jobs available everywhere. And part of the mistake we've made is to decide that the nature of a good job is that it's a tradable job. If you're not in a manufacturing firm producing some stuff or you're working in a bank in the middle of a big city, those are the high status jobs. That's all that matters. And I hear left-wing politicians and right-wing politicians make this mistake. Whereas we say, well, you're low earning doing these non-tradable service jobs and they're pretty low status. So people say, oh, these are all bad jobs, right? So raids the status is My what you're saying. My point is, yeah, one, what, what yeah. on earth is our like yeah. value in a society based on whether or not the good is traded? I mean, it's mad. Like, it's really important from an economic strategy perspective that we have the tradable jobs, but the idea that the status of the jobs, the quality of the work should be contingent on that is mad. And that is basically a main major feature. If you want there to be good jobs available in every community in Britain, we've got to raise the quality of these non-tradable jobs. The, the people that will be doing the retrofitting of houses that Karis mentioned earlier, that's really important we can basically choose the quality of those jobs social care jobs i'll give you another example why on earth as a country do we not require people who are doing shift work to be given advance notice of their shifts countries make completely different choices about the relative price of those services and the insecurity and the insecurity and you may have smaller service sectors. you may shrink some of those sectors as a result but the people working in them will be better off. just want to jump in and say that we can't have that conversation, I don't think, without mentioning the gendered nature of a lot of those yep. jobs. If you look at care work and so on, and in fact nursing, increasingly teaching, the status of that profession yep. in people's minds has actually decreased. So there's, there's a huge element here, which is about gender inequality as well. And about the role of trade unions, because you know manufacturing has a much greater proportion of people in trade unions compared to services, correct? It's basically which companies existed in the 1970s tells you a lot about which companies are unionised today. We've talked, I think, with IPPR in the past about the different forms of organised labour that are starting to emerge with some of these companies now. So that looks like it, it will evolve. Hopefully. And I do think we're at quite an interesting moment in terms of, you know, we've got um, a fairly tight labour market by which people mean that there are lots of people in work and lots of vacancies. And you're seeing a lot of strikes, which people will not have failed to notice if you use any form of public transport and so on. Um, and so I guess the hope is, because I do think it's really important how much power workers have in the economy against their employers and shareholders and those other interests what the hope is that some of that will stick i don't think we fully know yet whether that's going to have come to be with comprehensive plans like these how important is it selling them to the public versus how much are they to inform governments or governments in waiting is it taking individual bits out that will be particularly pertinent to people's lives or is it about saying here's a big master plan i'm not the politician in the room however i I do think if you're making these kind of big changes particularly thinking about the net zero transition i do think it's really important to bring the public with you i think in terms of uh, that overall picture of how is this going to affect you how is it going to affect your place actually because that's hugely important to how people experience the economy um, I do think that's important. Otherwise, you will see um, people who don't want that vision gaining popularity in politics. Totally agree with that. And the, um, one thing I would say is on, so in this project, it's moving into a deliberative phase with uh, a number of different subsets of the project talking to the public. What does the data tell you about the country? But then what do people tell you about the country is what good policymaking in the 21st century 
looks like. The public are not reading think tank reports because they're too busy listening to podcasts and other frippery. And quite right, they should be doing too. There's a World Cup on. But you ideally want this to be informed by wider conversation. In kind of Labour Party circles, there's a bit of a tendency to, to think. They think of the Attlee government as a revolution turned up with a big majority and just like had its own secret plan and was like, bang, we're going to do that. Nobody that's gone and read about the first half of the 20th century would actually think that's what happened. Like it built on decades of progress in terms of basically social democratic progress. It built on lots of work by local government, introducing lots of the things that an Attlee government then made national. It built on a lot of stuff that happened during the war and it built on a number of different political traditions. Things do not happen because somebody wrote a clever report out of the blue and then did it to the country and even thinking that was possible would mark you out as a madman but definitely as anti-democratic. I think the other thing just to add is that often politicians misread where the public are actually at. So, for instance, as part of our work on the environment, we've gone to Tees Valley, we've gone to Thorough, Aberdeenshire, South Wales. And what was really striking is that actually if they were given agency and the chance to kind of work through those issues and feel like they had input, a lot of those communities who started off cynical actually thought this was something that they could really support and get behind and see the benefits of. Last question. Give us a reason to be optimistic. Well, there's lots of reasons to be optimistic. Here's one really big one, which is it is clearly possible to be richer than the UK is today and more equal because lots of other countries are both richer than us and more equal. So we don't need some kind of technological revolution to make it happen. We don't need to become as rich as America or as equal as Norway. We can just look at some countries of which don't look that different to us. Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, France, all those five I just mentioned are all richer than us and they're all more equal than us. So this is not about trade-offs between growth and inequality. And as a result, their populations are much better off. So if we were the same GDP per capita as those countries and the same equality levels, then the typical households in Britain would be £8,800 better off. So there's a lot to play for. We don't need to be world beaters. We just need to be good, normal, making progress forward, not backwards. And doing that well, it should be grounded in an analysis of what the country is actually like and what it can plausibly be in the foreseeable future and getting on with being serious about doing that. Well, I'm going to start with the gleamy, which is over the past 10, 12 years or so, we've been thinking, oh, actually, we can't have any of the things we want. We can't invest in, in the future and so on. Um, and I actually think the public are turning against that. If you look at public opinion, I think people can see the opportunities of having a stronger economy, a less unequal economy, and of the net zero transition. Um, and I think public opinion is changing in favour of lots of the ideas that we've talked about today. Pretty good. Do you think they get the job? I think so. What was the job? What's the job? To be hairdresser. Phew. Karis Roberts and Tolson Bell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. I am going to my son's school Christmas fair wow. on Sunday. Wow. There's a jumble sale. Wow. Do you enjoy a jumble sale? <laughs> well, what do I don't you enjoy about a jumble sale? I'm not a great shopper. You're not really a great shopper, are you? Mm, not, not really, no. I, I, I certainly don't enjoy a rummage. Do you like a car boot sale? Not particularly for the same reasons as the sort of jumble sale. But you're so, you're so personal, I can imagine you running a little stall. I did bake some muffins. 
after I lost the 2015 general election, I don't know whether you know that, uh, that happened to me. There's a um, street festival, the York Ride Street Festival that happens near where we live in London. And I did bake some muffins. It was my sort of therapy. For- a friend of mine had an idea for a book once called uh, Trauma Foods, which is uh, collecting recipes of things that people ate at very difficult times of their life. I don't think the muffins were that nice, actually, unfortunately. This is surprising to me. Yeah. Any photos? Yeah, I'm sure there are some bad photos of them as well. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? Let's do it. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Torsten Bell and Karis Roberts. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. On location. On location. This is the first time we've seen Emma in ages. Yeah, nice uh, to see you, Emma. You're, you're not, you don't like speaking, do you? No. Well, she likes speaking in real life, but don't yeah. think on microphone. <laughs> you produ- no, you, the producers yeah. fall into two camps. Yeah. You get the ones who like being sidekicks, yeah. and then you get the strong silent type. And I always think of you as more the strong silent yeah. type, Emma. But it's lovely to be in the same room as Emma. Definitely. The first time in I don't know uh, how long. Rachel, we've seen a bit more recently, yeah. so I'm a bit more accustomed to that. It's fine. Yeah. It's nice, but it's you yeah. know, there's no novelty value yeah. to it. This is Rachel Barmer, who is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Uh, Gail Lofthouse, our announcer, not been in a room with her for a long time no. uh, James Deacon I have been in a room with a few times Ed never has and Ed Seed who composed the music uh, uh, at the moment uh, uh, neither of us have been <laughs> we'll come back to that next week there's been some email um, I think people want a continuity candidate and Ed Seed could be that could be that candidate <laughs> you and your brilliant ideas Jeff uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe if, if you'd turned up to the idea generation session you had some input. <laughs> that was obviously stored up and waiting to sort of, you know, waiting to be unleashed. A little defensive. Yes. Yeah. A little uh, defensive. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cull. Never met him. Probably never will. Well, I, I think that's you a bit, never know life's long. a bit sweeping. It? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 